Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 212 for September 3rd, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 74. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist Express, an easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers, clients, family, or friends. Be a tech support hero with Go to Assist. For a free 30-day trial, go to go to assist.com slash security and by audible.com for your free audiobook and a whole lot more visit audiblepodcast.com slash security now it's time for security now the show that covers all things security and privacy oriented online and off but as long as it has to do with your computer i guess not with peeping Tom's looking through the window. We don't help you with that. Steve no. Gibson is here. He is the man at GRC.com. <laughs> That's outside of our scope. We haven't yet, anyway. Yeah. Never say never. Uh, Steve is the uh, the major domo at GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation. They do that great spin right program and uh, all sorts of great free... They. You. They. I was going to say they. You. The great to unwashed masses <laughs> you. of GRC. <laughs> yes. Well, at, what was... How big? At one point, GRC had... Too many people. We had 23, and I just was pulling what little hair I have out. It was, I was just a babysitter, and I thought, this is not, I mean, I remembered years later running across an outline that I had prepared. It was in an outlining program called Grandview, which I used to love, and it was an outline about a meeting that we had about how to have meetings, and I thought, my God, even our meetings were having meetings. (laughs) <laughs> that's all i did was have meetings i hated it you know i like to argue with the bits and and write the code and and come up with solutions and things and i was paying everybody to do that for me and i thought well wait a minute i i'm i'm i've given up the thing i like doing the most so well i watch you know i watch i, I mean learn try to learn from that lesson um I, you know i'm very interested i've never been an entrepreneur or businessman before and so i pay very close attention to what you say about that because we're growing you know we have six employees now and I don't want to ever get to the point where I'm going to a lot of meetings. <laughs> well, at, at um, what I realized at one point for a while, it was it was exciting to have employees. It's like, whoa, look at all these people who you know are part of my team. And I definitely miss the camaraderie. Yeah, the, we've got that here. There was yeah. so there was a really neat synergy mm-hmm. among people. You know, people would come up with wacky things. I mean, it really wasn't aimed at. at clear productivity it was just fun it was just social it was nice that you know i chose smart people and so it's fun to be around a bunch of smart people that you know that that's its own reward but i also at one point realized hey it's not how much money moves through it's how much money stays behind (laughs) (laughs) i haven't learned that yet yeah i'm moving a lot of money through (laughs) and so not keeping so any of it. <laughs> I realized, yeah, it's really, it's heady to look at all the payables and receivables and look at the big numbers. But if, you know, if it just kind of moves on past and you wave at it as it's going by, it's like, well, okay. 
That's exciting. That's a big stream, but you know, you'd like to fill up your own reservoir sometime. Well, so, but there's, there's, you know, and when you're building a business, uh, revenue me- gives you more things you can do, and that's kind of where we're. I feel like we're at the building stage still. Certainly have clout that way. Yes, and, and have- uh, so the revenue helps us, you know, I- I- I improve the studio, add more people, and as long as adding more people adds more revenue. See, really kind of it's it's I feel like it's leveraged what we can do, what I can do personally by having extra these these people are so great. They help me. And then also we can play laser tag now. We have a team. (laughs) Well, for me, the best thing that ever happened was the Internet because, yeah, you could virtualize it. Receivables went away. I used to have two people who spent all their time just trying to get us paid. Yeah, because we were using big national and in some cases, international distributors and they they their contract said net 90 but they actually paid about 180 if we were lucky so we were waiting half a year to get money from them and then they'd send back quote damaged unquote damaged goods you know i mean egghead had a return policy where they they'd take back any software so people would buy a copy of spinrite off the shelf and take it home use it and then say well you know i think i'm done with it now and they'd take it back and say, I decided I don't want this. Yeah. Oy. And so, you know, and then it, it was an opened box, which Egghead had return privileges for. So it would go back up the stream uh, right. to the distributor. And then it would, they would like send back huge boxes of destroyed product. It looked like elephants had had a party on them. And so I thought, okay, there's just got to be a better way. Well, the internet happened. And so I, you know, by being able to automate this whole process, I've been able to, now I've got two people, Sue and Greg, who handle the accounting, bookkeeping, operation stuff on Sue's side and, and dealing with all of our customers, you know, tech support needs on, on Greg's side. And I just kind of get to move the technology forward. I just, it's, I've, this is it. I mean, this is just paradise for me, you know, and by, by virtualizing, by shutting down offices and they, they both work out of their, out of offices at their home, um, I'm able to save some money after all of this. So, yeah, you know, you're smart. You're smart. I, I hope I, I've learned this lesson. (laughs) I love it because I talk to you and people like Jason Calacanis who've been ahead, been there ahead of me and, and listen with great, you know, great interest to, uh, to, to your lessons. Well, and I tell you, it does take some discipline. I'm approached from time to time, as you might imagine, by people who have really interesting ideas. They offer seductive, alternative lives and i think you know what i have now is perfect yeah you know do not mess with perfect yeah so i generally politely decline i say ah well that really sounds good but you know i'm not your guy saying no is more important it's better it's a better skill than saying yes i agree yeah. with you on that one i have to learn a little bit of that so we've got a q and a episode today questions from our audience that we're going to uh, answer some amazing news. Um, everybody, I'm sure you've had you you've seen it in the news. Uh, the news of this new WPA uh, TKIP yes. hack. I really so, want to know about that because I'm, we'll talk, I'm, yep. I'm like you. Whatever that happens, I get all the emails saying, "Is this true? Is it safe?" And right. in, in the past, these cracks have been less dangerous than the headline might imply i don't know about this one though we'll find oh even more so this is so bizarrely theoretical it's like okay just you know wander off to whatever hot spot you want don't worry (laughs) okay good 
Yeah. And we have a bunch of fun uh, and interesting errata. And then, of course, our Q&A. Well, before we uh, get too far down that road, let me just mention briefly our friends at GoToAssist. This is a really great product for people who listen to this show, because I know many of you are in the business of support. You, uh, like Steve, you have, um, you know, a software you have to support, or maybe you're an IT professional and you have... Uh, you know, desks, users you have to support. And it's it's difficult. You know, telephone support is just a nightmare. I do that on the radio show. And, you know, you have to <laughs> click start. Okay. Go to <laughs> click run. Okay. Now type this. Type what? Type this. And it's just, it's it's painful. And so much, so many times you'd like to say, can I, if I could just reach my hand into that computer, I could fix this so fast. And that's what GoToAssist is all about. It's from Citrix. These are the kings of remote access. They have been for many, many years. And GoToAssist has been around since, at least since Tech TV days, because we used it on the screensavers uh, occasionally on a phone call to help people. Well, they've got, it's even better now. The new GoToAssist Express is faster, easier to use, uh, less expensive. You can provide tech support and help to your customers or clients anywhere in the world. You can view and control their computer online easily, even if they're not there. Unattended support, that's slick. You can have up to eight sessions simultaneously on your desk. And, if and you know, that's for a support pro. That's golden because you start an install on one. You start a, a scan on another. And you can, can, you know, continue to work through. Here's another thing you're going to like. You, get a, you can tell exactly what's running. You get exactly what information about what operating system, what security software, what programs are running in the background. You can drag and drop files from your computer to theirs. So if you've got a quick fix, a registry hack, whatever it is, you just drag it over, boom, and run it. I can go on and on. I want you to try it free for 30 days. That's all. It's the best way to find out what it can do for you and your business. You could be a support hero. Just go to gotoassist.com slash security. As long as we're talking about security, all sessions are 128-bit end-to-end encrypted using SSL. So it's, yes, it's secure. Go to assist.com slash security. Help your business on Macs or PCs. Become a support hero. You are, you. this is going to make you more money, make you more uh, efficient. And I'll help you a little bit with that stress level too. Go to assist.com slash security. And as always, with all our sponsors, but especially Citrix, we really thank them for a, uh, supporting our shows and making this all possible. So I guess we should start, Steve, with Irata. Well, news. News, got okay. Not, not too much. Um, uh, VMware Workstation was updated to uh, 6.5.3. They had a big along- conference in uh, San Francisco, so they probably announced it then, yeah? Yeah, well, this was mostly just, uh, it was, well, the main motivation was probably they had they, they had the live PNG problem in their code, so they updated, you know, we talked about that a few weeks ago. There was a, some overflow problems, not surprisingly, in, in image processing, PNG images in live PNG. Uh, they updated internally to 1.2.35 um, and incorporated that into their 6.5.3. Uh, they also now offer full support for the, for the uh, Ubuntu 9.04 client. Good. So people who are using uh, that flavor of Linux will be glad that they've got additional support. And there's also a ton of just other stuff. Um, as I read, as I read through the list of all the other things, I was like, oh, well, that would be handy. It's things like NAT, the NAT uh, translation mode doesn't work on newer Windows clients. Oh, 
uh, well, so that it does now, but it didn't in 6.5.2, which is what I had previously. So it's like, okay, well, that's handy to have. And, and all kinds of other things that affect a smaller um, subset of the, their, their total users. But so definitely worth updating to 6.5.3, which is the current, as of a couple of days ago, version of uh, VMware Workstation. Also, we've got a new Chrome from the the Chrome browser from Google is now at 2.0.172.43. Start date. Yes. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, what I found most interesting about this is that a severe flaw was found in V8, which is the open source JavaScript engine uh, that that Google has has been uh, developing and is excited about. It makes um, Chrome run so fast. But the the the, and the the problem was there was a way that you could that JavaScript could be used to access unauthorized memory and also potentially execute code um, that uh, is in the user's system. What I loved about it was that it was found and reported by Mozilla security. And I thought, well, that was nice of the Mozilla people to let Google know, I mean, a competing browser. Not that Google's, not, not that Mozilla's they in use, much danger. They use different engines, though, don't they? Well, in fact, I wondered if this meant that maybe Mozilla was taking a look at WebKit. that V8 yeah, engine, yeah. thinking, oh, you know, uh, maybe we ought to move that over into Firefox. Who knows? Um, could have had a V8. um and then there are some other reasons to update chrome uh there were some flaws found in the xml2 library um oh and the other cool thing is chrome decided to formally no longer allow md2 and md4 hashes which we know are compromised in ssl certificates so with this update you will not be able you will simply not that's good Connect, yeah, it is. Not Do other browsers allow that? They're still allowing it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice even to have a notification, but then your typical user, what are they going to do when they get some notice that says, well, the hash this site is using is technically not secure and could be compromised. We don't know that it is. We don't think it is, but then we wouldn't be able to tell if it were. Well, yeah, what do you, well, you know, what's a typical user going to do? Just their head's going to explode. So... You know, Chrome has just said, just decided to say, no, we're going to go the security route. And the the cool thing is, well, if Chrome had a bigger market share, I think they're about three percent right now of market market share on the internet. So they still just, not a not a huge factor, but it will certainly put some pressure on on sites to you know to update their certificates if they're still using an MD4 hash. They just uh, um, started putting out a version for the Mac that's at least somewhat stable. So, you know, and I I fired up a, a, a VM in order to go mm-hmm. to Chrome and look at it. It's so pretty. It's just a, <laughs> they have. I don't know if they do. They they must have this on PCs themes because they have themes on the Mac. They've like grass and all those sorts of different. Uh, I just you know I look at it, I go oh, that's so pretty. Yeah, but I I'm like not Chrome. using it. You know, I'm just saying it's with fast. Firefox. It's pretty, but Fire. You know, there's some, it's interesting because some people are starting to think that Firefox is the new Internet Explorer. That with three five, it it started Yay. to get a little bogged down. You know. Oh, you mean? Oh, I see. You're slowing down and slowing getting, down, yeah. buggy uh, issues, and I think that people are looking more and more toward 
Chrome as an as an alternative. It's funny, isn't it? That I mean, it can happen to anybody. Sure. We we used to have lightweight personal firewalls. Now look, look what they've become. I mean, you dread loading one of those things on your machine. That's why I can't wait for for you know Microsoft's forthcoming uh, AV solution. It's like, oh, good. Thank you very much. And we have a um, one really bizarre story. I just thought this one. I saw this pass by on my radar. I was like, whoa, isn't that odd? <laughs> Govern um, U.S. state uh, offices, typically governor's offices, have been receiving HP laptops they never ordered. I wonder from whom. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, in one case, West Virginia's governor, it uh, lo- looks like Joe Manchin, received five unasked for, never ordered HP laptops. Hmm, completely loaded with the latest software. Well, precisely. I mean, and what's interesting is this has been, there are other, there are in 10 other instances, um, four were delivered, six were intercepted of other government, U.S. government offices around, spread around the country, just receiving an HP laptop. Here you wow. go. And, I mean, no one at, at this point, they have not been analyzed. There's no news of what they contain. But, the, but I see the, the FBI is investigating. Oh, yeah, yeah. The FBI is on it because they're thinking, wait a minute, what is the story with this? And and the the, the assumption is that 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 security is now enough of a factor people are trained not to click on links in email I mean, you know the the idea being that the traditional ways of getting inside the perimeter are are no longer succeeding enough that now people are saying well let's just send them a laptop all set to phone home and see if somebody who's inside the perimeter the security perimeter fires it up wow. and if so that gives us a foothold Inside the network. <laughs> so isn't that? That's it's just a trap. A, Somebody said in the chat room. <laughs> it's just Ad, amazing. Admiral Akbar says, it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> Don't turn it on. No. Now, I, I did. I have to say that I when I heard they were HP laptops, I was thinking, well, how could you tell if there was any malware installed? <sighs> There's so much other crap. On oh, there. my goodness. Yes. I mean, it's HP is the worst laptop I know of in terms of gunk. And all being pre-installed. They, like a lot of kind of consumer-grade uh, systems, I think of Gateway, uh, have those um, background downloader, uploader, fix programs running all the time. So there's, they're always phoning home. Oh, there's stuff going on. I mean, and, and, and all of the, the, you know, the trialware, things are expiring and telling you, well, after your, you know, two months of using, you know, Betty's Flower Shop program, don't you want to purchase it? Uh, what? No. Now, I don't, how do I get this off of here? Theoretical question. Um, could they re-image the drives, just format it, and uh, would be okay? Or is it possible to hide something? I guess you could hide something in the keyboards. A keystroke well, logger or something yeah, in BIOS, I mean, if, right? That's a very good point. You could go, if you're physically delivering a computer, You, you that's a very good point, Leo. You could do all kinds of extra sneaky things to the hardware that goes beyond what your typical drive-by malware download could do. That seems like, you know, a little overly sophisticated, but I mean, you know, for example, you could have an extra radio. A transmitter, there, yeah. An extra Wi-Fi, you know, system or something. You know, anything could be in there. So it's definitely creepy. And 
I would argue probably that, you know, people who don't order equipment and receive stuff uh, should be skeptical. So I thought this was really interesting. Um, also, uh, it appears, and I haven't looked at it closely yet, but that there's a lot more information has surfaced since we mentioned it tentatively last week. I was a little skeptical when only the register.co.uk had talked about this crack of GSM, um, the cell phone network technology. That's the topic for next week. We're, we will do, I, 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 I said next week's TID which is topic in depth. Oh, good. I like that. That's a new, that's our new, and now the topic in depth. It's like CNN. I'll get, I'll get, uh, I'll get what's his name to record something for us. You know, sort of a a nice announcement. This is topic in depth. (laughs) Okay. But we're going to talk about GSM. GSM next week, cracking GSM, which of course is a big deal because it's, it's one of the, Encrypted technologies, which we're using for cell phones, uh, the other one being CDMA. Mm-hmm. And I have said a number of times that I was not satisfied with the encryption of of cell phone technology. I had, you know, if you if you search back in our transcripts, you'll find me having said that a number of times. And whoops, sure enough, here it is. Apparently, if you, you know, someone with a laptop and a special receiver is able to you know, do what we imagine only the NSA previous to this could do. And they certainly have been able to for some time because the technology just wasn't that good. So we will talk about that next week. Um, the big, big, big issue that has happened between last week and this week, which m- so many people wrote in about, is what happened with WPA. That is the, the traditional... Uh, you know, Wi-Fi technology. Remember that WPA has two different types of encryption. It has the old style TKIP encryption based on the RC4 cipher and also state-of-the-art encryption using the AES cipher. We did a whole podcast away a while back about about a an exploit of the TKIP encryption, which allowed a a fifteen minute long decryption of a short packet if the access point supported quality of service QoS, and the idea was that that QoS, a quality of service access point, had multiple packet queues. And the the reason this took 15 minutes was that if you upset the access point with wrong guesses too often, that is more than two within a certain time window, like a minute, then the access point would decide, oh, I'm being hacked, and it would shut down and rekey everybody, which would cause you to lose the work you had done up to that point. So you had to, you had to make sure you didn't guess any twice within a one-minute sliding window, and so that's why it took 15 minutes because you needed, at most, 15 or 16 guesses which would probably be wrong 
in order to in order to perform this particular attack. So the big news of this new attack is you and what the authors state is that it is no longer necessary to have quality of service support on the access point. I was like, okay, well, so what else? Well, it turns out that that what they've done is even sort of more theoretical because what what it requires is that is, is a condition of the radio reception, which seems unlikely to occur without like some tremendous amount of work, which is that strangely enough, the the access point and the user who you're attacking cannot be within radio range of each other. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's like, okay. So so the attacker has to literally be a man in the middle, meaning their their radio has to be the link between the access point and the user. So you're posing so, as the user. So, well, I mean, but physically, I mean, physically, the radios of the two endpoints, the access point and the user, cannot be within range of each other, or this won't work. Yeah. So, so the attacker is literally a the the intermediary radio link passing the traffic you know acting as a relay passing the traffic back and forth but this doesn't work if the endpoints can are within radio range so it's like okay fine so now what so basically this is that this is essentially the same attack but you're using the fact that the endpoints can't hear each other radio wise to to obtain the equivalent of what you got with the quality of service cues that is to say there's you know and and if 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 listeners have questions and really want to know about this we did discuss the way RC4 and WEP works. When we talked about how badly broken WEP had become, one of the problems with WEP, with WEP, Wired Equivalent Privacy, is the that's the original Wi-Fi standard that you just really don't want to use anymore because it's you know it's over as far as it, its its security goes because it's been it was so poorly designed in the beginning. There's something called an IV, the initialization vector which is a typically is just a counter and every packet which is enciphered that is encrypted uses the next larger iv initialization vector and that's required because the way the encryption works it's not secure unless you have this initialization vector which is used sort of to seed the encryption for every single packet. Well, one of the things that WEP never did was to insist on initialization vectors incrementing. That is, you could take a packet and and hack it, and meanwhile, the the access point is spitting out more packets with incrementing initialization vectors. So you could then take the packet you had intercepted and 
and decrypt it and then retransmit it to the access point, which even though its initialization vector was now old and technically expired, the access point didn't enforce the currency of initialization vectors. Well, that was fixed in WPA. So one of the nice things about WPA is that no access point will accept an initialization vector that is older than any that it has already accepted. So the initialization vectors must be monotonically increasing in value over time. They have to be in sequence. They have to be in sequence. Thank you. That's, that says it more easily. <laughs> or monotonically uh, in time. An <laughs> out-of-sequence initialization vector is just ignored. It's, it's thrown away. It's like, okay, well, we're not sure where this came right. from, but we're ignoring it. So, so the multiple queues in a quality of service supporting access point have independent uh, initialization vectors. Uh, and so you're able to you're able to use one of the queues that's like way behind in order to play games with the with the encryption and the key which is uniform among all of the queues. So that so the fact that you had multiple queues meant that you had desynchronized initialization vectors because they were these initialization vector counters were per queue. Okay, so that's that was the the wedge which the which the first group cleverly exploited now this this newer approach says okay if we're literally the man in the middle from a radio link standpoint then we're not passively we're not passively listening we're able to get a packet and mess with it before we send it on meaning that that the other end hasn't seen the larger initialization vector yet so they're able to literally to use the fact that they they have they have sort of preemptive access to the traffic in order to to perform the exploit the problem is that after all of this you still have nothing any more worrisome than what we had before which is that you could you can only decrypt very short packets where you know most of the content that is you you know what the plain text will be well that pretty much limits you to arp packets and in their paper they only talk about arp exploits and the what worried people was that the title was um you know useful decryption in less than a minute well 37%, I think it's 36.9% of the packets could be decrypted in about a minute because of some optimizations they found. For example, they were able to nail down some other bytes in the ART packet as a consequence of knowing the IP of the access point since they have to be a member of the access point to, to be doing this, this radio traffic transfer. So they did some clever things, but... All you end up being able to do is is spoof a single, very short ARP packet in that length of time because you already know most of the data. You do not, and this is the key, this is the critical part. You do not get the key. This doesn't crack the WEP key or the, sorry, the WPA key. 
Um, it only allows you to determine on for a given short packet, you you are able to determine the the cipher bitstream, which allows you to basically change the ARP packet to something else. Oh, and during this time, the other end is blacked out. That is, you you can't you you can't forward that packet while you're doing it. So they've got this other fancy business where when normal size packets that are carrying non ARP payload, they have to let they have to like bridge those through to keep the the user from knowing what's going on while they suspend the ARP packet for a minute. So I mean, there's all these criteria and the fact that they have to be out of radio range from each other. That is the 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 endpoint that you're hacking can't be within radio range of the access point. They have to rely on you to be the forwarder. So it's extremely sort of theoretical and okay, good to know, but it doesn't mean anybody has to, you know, run away screaming and worrying that the WPA has been hacked. The lesson from this is what we've seen time and again, and I'm sure listeners, long-term listeners of the podcast have seen this, and that is that as something begins to get weakened, additional sort of chinks are found in its armor. So this is a reason to move from the TKIP cipher, which is sometimes referred to as WPA, over to the use of AES, sometimes referred to as WPA2, although that's really not an official designation, as we've mentioned when we've talked about this stuff before. So nothing big to worry about, uh, in my opinion, but, you know, further, further pressure on abandoning this the RC4 cipher because being an XOR an XOR based cipher it does allow the so-called um, keystream to be reverse engineered for short packets we're beginning to see this more and more who knows what's next better just to be away from it in case anybody comes up with something you know really bad yeah just to reiterate uh, it's the same thing we said last time use AES yeah. Which I have already done on all my WPA systems. Yeah. The, the only reason I can imagine someone might not is if they had some piece of equipment which didn't support AES and they were thinking, well, okay, TKIP is all I can really use because I have to have, you know, this piece of equipment on my network. And I would say, okay, just recognize that it's not as secure. It still seems pretty good, but. It's not clear what we're going to have come along tomorrow. Certainly, as long as anything that happens is public, we'll let our listeners know. But uh, yes, use AES unless you you really can't. And maybe even consider give any devices that can't use AES their own access point running TKIP so that and so that at least they're not you know part of the same network. That's what I did uh, when I had to use WEP for some older hardware. Just have a kind of standalone WEP router out there. Yep. And, and again, if you can, isolate it from your internal network because you don't want somebody to crack that and then have access to your LAN. Right. If I put that router. outside a WPA router, in other words, have the WPA AES router be my main router and then attached to it have a WEP router, does that isolate it? Or a TKIP router, does that isolate it? I would, if you had one additional router. You need three between, to do this. Yeah, because of ARP, 
uh, ARP spoofing problems. You you don't want to let somebody be able to spoof ARP in order to intercept all of your internetworks traffic, which they would be able to do if they were able to see ARP traffic. So routers do not transit ARP traffic. They they don't bridge ARP. They don't have to because they're they're maintaining separate networks on either side. So you that's the one thing you would need to do is to have one more router between that and and your WEP your untrusted uh, Wi-Fi because of the po- the possibility of ARP spoofing. And is it in your, on your base station in your access point? Is it usually pretty clear which is AES and which is TKIP? Does it say AES? Yeah. The problem is it's really fuzzy nomenclature. Um, in fact, we talked about a, a router that would le- allow both. It was TKIP plus AES, and then there was also just an AES. Well, that's what you'd want to use unless for some reason you needed both. And the idea was it's like, hey, a feature that the router had was that you could use either. Well, you probably don't want that. You want to stay away from TKIP. So unfortunately, there just is the, the, the nomenclature used is not standardized, and it is fuzzy. But most users, I think, if you look at the settings and maybe you look at the corresponding help guide, you just want it, you want the strongest you can get. But you, if if it allows you to have both, you do not. You want to stay away from TKIP and and not have that also. Got it. Um, in Errata, uh, there's been some interesting news about ultracapacitors. We talked um, an episode that many of our listeners have said they enjoyed as one of our rare sort of off-topic episode. We talked about the whole idea, which fascinated me from a physics standpoint, about the, the, the company EE Store. I think they're down in Texas, who have a technology that they've been working on for a number of years that's got some impressive venture capital folks behind it, venture capital folks who don't tend to make mistakes. Um, there, it, it sort of leaked out that they had let that EE store had let a contract out to a company called Polarity, and that Polarity had been given the job of of using Polarity's high voltage to low voltage converter technology to be integrated into the the so called EESU, which is the, the name for EE Store's capacitor-based battery. Um, checking out, I did, I did a little browsing around, and Polarity, the company, looks very legitimate. Uh, their little news page says that in 2009, they were awarded follow-on production contract for the Navy's SPS-49 radar upgrade. Also in 2009, they were awarded development contract for next-generation TW test sets for Teledyne MEC, whatever that is. And then in the, on their little news page it, it, page, it says 2009 awarded contract from EE Store to integrate Polarity's high power HV to LV, which is high voltage to low voltage converter into EE Store's EESU that will be used in Zen Motor Company's small to medium size electric car. And then there was they were also awarded a contract, uh, a Varian contract for high power solid state modulators and so forth. So look into the company. It looks very real. And associated with some comments that were made is the is the assumption that in September or October, 
there's going to be a big announcement. So we may be close to seeing one of these things actually working, which would just be spectacular, in my opinion. Well, we'll just remind our users or our, our listeners that um, the whole technology here, the idea is that you have a capacitor with that is extremely large in terms of its capacitance and at the same time is able to store a tremendously high voltage without it shorting out or breaking down because the amount of power that is stored is goes up with the square of the voltage that the capacitor is can be charged to so you need both extremely high voltage and lar- high capacity and potentially we end up with a tr- tremendous breakthrough in energy storage which you know could affect all of our lives since we're all carrying things around now that have batteries and batteries are annoying in so many different ways so this is exciting you think maybe in the next couple of months we're going to see something i think we're going to see something yeah i mean you know it's i i I glommed onto this originally as we all know because it was like ooh, this is i mean this is like the answer if they can build these and we may be close to seeing you know production of this which would be great one other little blurb uh, i got a kick out of was someone pointed me a friend actually to you know we've talked about risks and cisks uh risk being reduced instruction set computers and cisks being complex instruction set computers it turns out there's such a thing called an OISC what's that thank you leo that was your cue <laughs> wait a minute let me think if i can uh, figure that out OISC so, well R- we know it's instruction I-S-C. set computer uh origami optional uh, uh, I don't know what. I love it. It's one instruction set computer. Well, that's about as as reduced as you can get. It, and, and what I love about it is if you have one instruction, you don't need an opcode. <laughs> yes. Just keep, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. How can you have a one instruction set computer? And it's Turing complete. No, it's not. Remember we talked about the voting machine last week and how they had come up with a whole bunch of gadgets by using the code at the end of existing subroutines in order to execute their own code and that they had enough of them that they had created a Turing complete computer such that any that they could do anything any other computer could do well it turns out that you can have a one instruction computer which is Turing complete no there are various choices of instruction but the typical one, the instruction is subtract and conditional branch. So it's a it's a three. So that's two per- instructions, though. Well, no, no, no. It's one instruction. It it. So what it does is it does a. You have three parameters. Okay. It subtracts the the second parameter from the first, and then if the value is negative, it branches to where the third. To, to the address of the third parameter. So that's that's the instruction. Okay. Subtract and conditional branch. And so I, I see what you mean. Technically, you could call it maybe it's two one, instructions. It's one big it, instruction. It's one big instruction. Okay. And and the way you solve, I thought there was very good. There's several clever things about this. Well, the way you solve, the well, what if I don't want a branch? Is, well, the branch target is the next instruction. So so if you if you don't want a branch... You just say, well, the branch is the following instruction. Keep so going. Whether it branches or not, it, it 
it ends up at the next instruction. But it can't really do any work. And well, it actually does. It's all you can from that one instruction. You can synthesize anything. Really? For example, you can you because think about it. Like you you need subtraction as opposed to addition because if you if you subtract in the right way, that is equivalent to addition. And you can perform logical operations. You can you can basically get this to do everything you want. Um, if for anyone who's curious, Wikipedia has a great page on OISC computers. People have built them. Uh, someone actually built one out of hardware and and programmed it to 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 do things. And there's emulators and simulators. And so this is not, you know, this is not a a, a brand new concept. It's it's something that's been around for a while. I just got a big kick out of it. The one instruction computer and mostly what i loved is like well you don't need an opcode starting off you know right off the bat no opcode because you don't need to tell it which instruction to execute it executes the only one it's got over and over and over neat and um i mentioned we were talking about uh 3d technology and a whole bunch of users wrote in because i was talking about how well one way or another you need to give you know you need to give each of our eyes a separate image i talked about the red green glasses and the notion of of LCD, high-speed LCD shutters flickering. Um, and, of course, the the other technology is polarized glasses where, and, you know, I don't know, I, probably people who listen to this podcast have, have messed around with traditional polarized glasses where, you know, as you rotate the lens against the other one, you can see it, like, black out and then, then, then come back. Well, those are linearly polarized glasses. So one approach that had been used was that a special screen is needed, a silverized screen, which will not scramble the polarization as it reflects the projected light back to the viewer. So you have a projector which puts out the two images that are bound for people's left and right eyes with polarized light that is 90 degrees off axis from each other like one is vertically polarized the other is horizontally polarized and the glasses are the same the problem with that is you have to hold your head exactly exactly (laughs) straight exactly otherwise as you go as you tilt your head you see bleed from from the from the wrong polarity although i imagine it's self-correcting because if it, it starts to look weird as your head tilts so you just and yes and in fact what what has been found is that people quickly learn they i mean as they turn their head they go oh, whoops you know and so they quickly adapt okay now here's the part that hurts my head is that i can understand the idea of of vertical and horizontal polarization i mean i've in the old days of Polaroid sunglasses, I would take two lenses and rotate them, and you could see how it would black out, and then you'd rotate them 90 degrees, and then now you can see through, okay? There's a different kind of polarization called circular polarization. And yeah, I have that in filters. You know, in uh, camera filters, you have circularly polarized lenses. Okay, well, you can have... You can have Clockwise circular right. polarization and counterclockwise circular polarization, and they block each other out, which blows my mind because the way the current 3D technology works is there's a digital projector with a special thing 
in front of it, which at at many times a second, 144 times per second, so also many times per frame that it's transmitting, this thing is is flipping back and forth the polarization, the circular polarization between clockwise and counterclockwise at the same time that the image is being changed. So it so this light goes down and hits the silvered screen, which has to have a special screen. You can't use the old style uh, glass beaded screen because those screens do not respect the polarization. They, 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 they scramble the polarization upon reflection. So you have to have a special screen. But what, then what comes back to the user is the two separate images circularly polarized in, with different spins, however that works. And they're wearing glasses with the matching circular polarized filters. So now, so now they can turn their heads and it doesn't matter. And I have, I cannot conceptually get how that works. We've, you know, photographers are are familiar with this because uh, uh, you can buy filters that are circular, circularly polarized filters. And I've even seen demos. You can look on YouTube where somebody has a polarized filter on, uh, on a screen and then as and one of these filters puts it in front of a camera and rotates it and it darkens or lightens depending on the rotation. So, um, it, well, but it wouldn't, that's the problem is what you described is I'm familiar with a linearly polarized filter, but this circularly polarized filter wouldn't lighten or darken with rotation. Well, it only does if, if it's canceling waves. So if you have a, it takes two filters, Right. So it's canceling because as the rotation goes, it's canceling the, the other filter. So you're, you're, you're putting them at a sink. I don't know. This sounds to <laughs> me like it would not, it would not change as you rotate the filter. Okay. It's you're just, you're right. Because it, now, now, now I think it'd be a linearly polarized filter that would, yeah, because it yes. would go out of sync with the waves. Yes. Yeah. And so this is somehow all on and all off. If it, if it's, you know, it wants circularly polarized clockwise light and all of the counterclockwise light it blocks out yep that, it's yep, just yep. It's like that's just so cool i but again i can't get my brain around how it does that but you know i mean i can't think of an analogy i guess that that, that fits <laughs> i think a circular um, polarizer on a camera is different you're right i think it's got linear linear polarization in it um two last things in our errata um there's news about my one of my favorite sci-fi authors, our, our friend Michael McCullum at uh, sci-fi-az.com, whose books I love. Um, Leo, you, I respect your um, decision not to read unfinished <laughs> multi-volume series. Because it's extremely frustrating. It's so hard. Oh my! And especially, for example, the the when we did um, Pandora's Star. And I talk about a cliffhanger. I mean, you yeah. were just left thinking, oh, my yeah. God, when are we yeah. going to get part two? And, of course, none of Peter, I don't think Peter Hamilton's ever written a short book. Um, so, you know, huge investment. And then you're left hanging. Well, uh, the news is that uh, Michael will have the proof copy of the final book in the Gibraltar series yeah, yeah. to to me on saturday 
Uh, he sent me email, I think it was Friday of last week. And he said, hey, Steve, I've heard through the podcast listeners that you're still interested in having a look at editing this text when I'm finished with it. And remember that I had mentioned a couple weeks ago that one of our listeners had noted that Michael had updated his page on his website saying a few months from now. Well, he said that his reread went much faster than expected. And um, so upon hearing that on Friday, I said, do I said, yes, I'm absolutely interested in editing book three. Um, I'd like to get a copy of book two for the Kindle because I know that his site now offers eBooks in virtually every format ever known. I mean, it's just amazing how many different formats. And he said, well, I've got news. It's on Amazon. Wow. So, uh, and so he said, I'd be happy to reimburse you for the cost, but you know, it's, you can get it instantly for your Kindle from Amazon. And I said, I don't know. I don't want reimbursement. I'm happy to do this. So I ordered it from Amazon and both the first and second book, which were, you know, instantly delivered. Then I learned something very cool, which I had never had occasion to learn. It only affects people who have multiple Kindles on a single account. But I've always sort of wondered about the synchronized deal. And it really works beautifully because what I learned is I can read on my stair climber, which is a breakthrough. So I have the D, the DX, the big screen Kindle. <laughs> right. Rubber banded now <laughs> to my stair climbers, you know, console, which I can no longer see. It covers it up, but I really don't need to see. And and so I've ne- I've been having, you know, my hour plus long workouts just gleefully reading. And so this is going to allow me to get to the Kim Stanley Robinson. Is that the guy? Kim Stanley Robinson? Yes. The, the Mars. The Mars. The Mars. Red, blue and green Mars. Yeah. Yes. It'll allow me because now I have time to read because instead <laughs> on of the stair climber, climber. <laughs> on the stair climber. And what's cool is that Amazon beautifully synchronizes. They don't have any problem with the same novel being loaded into multiple Kindles oh, on the same account. Know. And yes. when you get to page X on one, the other jumps to page X. Well, and so so what happens is I'll be reading along for sixty six minutes uh, typically, or plus that because I normally like to finish whatever aspect I'm in on the stair climber, and I just stop. Then, then I take my little Kindle K2 uh, to dinner with me. When I turn it on, up pops a little, I mean, all by itself, it pops up a notice says, oh, you are currently at the following location in Steve's DX Kindle. That's neat. Would you like to move there in this Kindle? And so, I mean, so they're formally saying we have, we have no problem with a person having multiple Kindles and the same books on multiple Kindles, which I, I never really... I can't see why they would. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's just more money for them. But no, the iPhone app does that too. And so I kind of knew this because you, they have a Kindle iPhone app and it will also synchronize with your Kindle standalone. So I guess they're just extending that feature across all Kindle platforms. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah. Um, so I did want to tell our listeners, anyone who has who has enjoyed Michael's books, anyone who is waiting for book three, I don't know from the time I'm through with it, how long it'll take him to publish it electronically. I wouldn't think very long. Um, If anyone like Leo has been abstaining from getting into the Gibraltar series for fear that they'd hit the end of the, the books that were in print or available yet, you know, and then not have the story ended, you fear not because I don't think it's more than a few weeks before number three is done oh, and great. oh 
And so I did read number two again to sort of remember where we had left. That's my problem. That's my problem. I have to reread it to catch up. Yes. And so I I read I read I reread number one when number two came out and I I was tempted to reread them both. But I wasn't sure if I had time. It turns out I did have time. But it's just a I I will say again, the Gibraltar series is is re an intriguing plot. I I just I like his work. It's it's not insanely long and infinitely detailed the way Peter Hamilton's are where you, you know, you end up with a, a massively complex world you're holding in your head. Michael's tends to be more directed toward the plot line. So, you know, it's a little thin on an unnecessary characterization and unnecessary detail, but it's, it's hard sci-fi at its best. Um, I'm rereading uh, the sales of Tau Seti right at, at the moment, because I just, now I have to wait for book three to get ready. Uh, and I was just, I was loving him, his description of light sails and the use of light sails for breaking and mm-hmm. how you use electrostatic fields to gather, gather uh, the hydrogen, interstellar hydrogen and, and funnel it in. And, and I mean, it's just it's great sci fi. So I'm looking forward to the Kim Stanley Robinson stuff because you have said that it's very much that way. Yeah. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's all about technology and a lot of hard science in it. I love hard sci fi. And lastly. I just got the Think Geek email today, and I always just browse through it to see if there's anything that grabs me. Well, they were announcing a bunch of new T-shirts, and thinkgeek.com has a bunch of T-shirts. I ordered some of this one that (laughs) I just loved, and I thought, I've got to tell our listeners, because I know there are geeks like us who are kind of curmudgeon-y, who, for this T-shirt, there's just never been a more perfect T-shirt. It's black. And it has one word in big uppercase letters with a period in white. Oh, boy. The word is no. (laughs) We were just talking about that at the beginning of the show, learning to say no. Just N-O. No. I just just love a black T-shirt that just says no. No. Period. I will not. (laughs) Just don't, you know. Don't ask me. And people, of course, it will ask, you know, it will be a conversation starter, too, because people will say, well, no, what? Ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> anything. No, anything. Uh, anyway, I loved it. I'm going to so. have to find that one. I see a no comment. I see there's no place like 127.0.0.1, which is one yep, of my That's favorites. an old one. No, I will not fix your computer. But one with just says no. No to everything. It's just perfect. <laughs> They're yeah. great. I love them. Really nice people. Yeah. Um. Do you want to do a spin right uh, letter or I don't see the need. Everyone the... listening knows that spin right solves problems, fixes drives. A number of our, our, our Q&A people mentioned spin right uh, appreciatively. So I thought, ah, that's fine. Oh, I found it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. And oh, isn't it's, it perfect? They call it here. the shirt of ultimate disambiguation. <laughs> 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 yes that's true <laughs> there's it's just no ambiguity. It's, just, it's big ambiguity. and it's just no no i just just think it's perfect that's a perfect geek shirt um let me before we get to uh, the questions and we have some great questions from our listeners uh, i do want to mention since we're talking about sci-fi see i don't i can't uh read while i'm going up and down on the, on the jogging machines or the exercise machines of the bicycle so i'm always listening to uh, audible.com that's where i 
you know, I get my reading done. And uh, since we're talking about sci-fi, let me tell you, you can get... Audubon is a great sci-fi collection. And it wasn't always that way, but they've, but they've really shown uh, that they know... People are into sci-fi, and uh, and they and they've taken it upon themselves to record a lot of sci-fi with their Audible Frontiers uh, division that it was never recorded. They just released an Arthur C. Clarke uh, classic, "The Fountains of Paradise." So, if you haven't read this one, this is the space elevator story. Uh, this is a great Arthur. I love Arthur C. Clarke stuff. This is a great one to listen to. Mark Veter. Reads it now. Let me tell you, I can get it for free. You, you mean it, it's Skyhook technology? <laughs> Skyhook? No, you know the uh, yes. the twenty five thousand mile uh, space elevator. Yeah, it's called a Skyhook. They call in, it a Skyhook. In, oh, yeah, okay. tech, uh, t- typically. Oh, very cool. I yeah. didn't know there was a book about it. Yeah, Neat. yeah. I mean, uh, of course, there's. In fact, there's a, a space elevator uh, scene in the Red Mars, which is also available on Audible that you'll quite enjoy. How can I? I don't want to spoil this. But imagine what would happen if a space elevator were attacked by terrorists and snapped. Ooh, it wouldn't be good. No. <laughs> and this is what I love about Kim Stanley Robinson. The scientific detail. He's thought about it. What would happen? Uh, but anyway, I'll leave it to your imagination. But the or fa- do you mean Arthur C. Clarke? Well, that's Red Mars, the Kim Stanley Robinson ah. book. Right. Arthur C. I don't know if it snaps. I don't think it does in the Fountains of Paradise. I I, I don't think that's in there. Here's the book, though. If you ha- I haven't read it in ages, and I'm going to buy it because I want to listen to it again. Uh, but anyway, the point is that there's a ton of great stuff available. 60,000 titles. They are re-recording, or in many cases, never recorded sci-fi classics and getting them out there on their uh, Audible Frontiers program. You're going to find a book you're interested in. Uh, whether it's the Red Mars series or uh, or any or Arthur C. Clarke, just a ton of great stuff. But here's how you find out. Go to audible.com and browse around. And then when you're ready to sign up for the gold account, that's the book a month and you get the first one free, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It plays on Kindles. It plays on iPods. It plays on Zunes, iRivers, uh, Creatives, uh, all many, many, many devices uh, they go to the device center if you want to see it'll play if it'll play on your device. Chances are very good it will. Even works on some GPS devices. So while you're driving around in the car, you can listen. I get so much reading done, but just listening in those downtimes when I can't normally hold a book. Audible.com. I'm sorry, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Get your first book free. Uh, tr- check out those great uh, Audible Frontiers books and the new Arthur C. Clarke uh, book. Um, the, new, the new version of the classic Arthur C. Clarke novel, The Fountains of Paradise, our recommendation of the week. Audible.com, audiblepodcast.com, slash security now. All right, Steve, are you ready? Ready. For questions from the audience. <laughs> Starting with Craig in Chicago, who is sounding and seeming rather desperate. He says, hi, Steve, I sent this a few times now that iPig is no longer offering its service and I need to use my computer in hotspots. I guess iPig was a hotspot VPN type service. Listening to you and Leo, I know I need a VPN. I can't afford a server. I'm not up to speed on running it. I'm waiting for your VPN service, Steve. But in the meantime, I need a service. I came across this hotspotshield.com. They offer SSL Connect like iPig, but I only trust it if you, Steve, give it an okay. 
I've been a paid user of SpinRite since the mid-80s. It's been a lifesaver. That's a long time. It's been a lifesaver. It's 25 years. Please tell us if using Hotspot Shield is okay, and then at least I can relax until your VPN is out. And, of course, I can't wait until you're offering it. Thanks, and Leo, thanks for your great service. Please respond to this. I think there's others needing a VPN solution. Hotspot Shield, Have you? Do you are you familiar with these guys? Well, first of all, Craig, I hope you're listening to this because, Leo, I don't know how many times he has submitted this. Oh, dear. But every time I, I look, there's this message from Craig, and he hasn't provided me with his email address, so I haven't been able to say, okay, message received. <laughs> I'm, we're going to take care of this. Right. And, and so it's just over and over and over. So, Craig, got it? Here, here's your answer. Um, I don't know them, so I went to take a look. And the first thing I see is uh, some uh, raves from CNN and PC Mag and a couple other publications. I say, oh, okay, well, that's something. Uh, and the, all there is is just press this to download. It's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, what's who's this company? Press why this why is this download. a free uh, service? So down at the bottom is Anchor Free. So I go to Anchor Free and find Anchor Free. And it's like, okay, here's a little more information. This is where this hot spot shield is coming from. And poke around a little bit. And then I sort of see, okay, somehow this is advertiser supported. Oh, boy. Hmm. How does that work? So then I go to the advertiser page. And I will share with our listeners, because this is a perfect example of, you know, a little bit of simple security research anyone can do. And so the headline says, advertise on the anchor free media network no 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 advertise no. to anchor free users okay advertise to anchor free users who are always connected while on the go they seek out wi-fi shop for the latest technologies use voip for making calls and look for mobile connectivity all while using Anchor Free for security and privacy, <coughs> privacy, privacy, <laughs> while surfing the net. And you can have access to them. They, oh, exactly. <laughs> and oh, they're wait, yours. It gets, it gets better. This is just the warm-up. They are, because we've got contextual advertising happening here in a minute. Oh, we know what that means. Yeah. They are today's broadband Uber user. Yeah. And we can touch them. Oh, dear. Not only, yeah. Touch them don't whether touch they want me. to be touched there or not. Yeah, don't touch me there. Don't touch me there. Not only that, we offer something truly defining in online advertising. We provide our users security and privacy while enabling brands to target contextually relevant advertising campaigns to some of the most tech-savvy users online. Wow. Anchor Freeze technology enables ad placements across any one or more of the domains that are visited by our users. Okay, that's, that says enough of this. I mean, I've answered my question. Our, our listeners now understand that what this means is that what you do and where you go is being tracked and monitored and contextualized so that they can choose, apparently, they're, they're doing interstitial. Actually, it somewhere does talk about interstitial advertising. So they're monitoring the web. They're, they're, um, they're monitoring the websites you visit, and they are changing 
in some fashion the content of the pages you download to insert their own ads. And that's why the this VPN unquote solution is free. That's their model for making it free. Hmm. So now I uh, think though, to be fair, we do a lot of you know, ad supported free stuff. Our stuff is ad supported free. If it, they do disclose, right? Um, uh, it's, I think it's probably very clear that anyone using the service is going to see quickly, ads quickly realize that this is, this is what they're doing. So you're right. I, my outrage is, is at the, I, I guess at the idea that, that in, that anything is changing the data in my link. Right. That is in order to be displaying their ads from their advertisers, then my web browsing is being filtered by them. Right. So yes, Leo, I think it's entirely fair to say, Hey, but the service is free. Right. So, I mean, Google's free. There's a lot of free stuff that is ad supported. So yes, I guess the most important thing is disclosure, uh, a a strong, you know, privacy policy that they, you can read. And it is, this is something I wish, uh, you know, and I, I have to say, I did read the fine print on their privacy policy and it is entirely one-sided. Yeah. I mean, well, it, there you it, go. in fact, it even didn't even seem to really apply to them that much. It's like they got somebody else's they, privacy they, policy. And that's the other thing. An independent third party auditing, it would be nice, like a trustee or somebody. Um, I mean, we're going to be, there's a, I think more and more, you're going to see this kind of thing. I mean, this yes. is a model for all broadcasting. It's ad supported free broadcasting. And as it migrates to the internet, I mean, we obviously don't collect any information about our uh, users. Um, it would be hard for us to do so, and I certainly have no desire to do so. But I could see, you know, I could see that that's happening. So in this case, you're saying stay away. Well, no, I, I guess I'm saying uh, uh, Craig wanted my approval, and I can't give it to a VPN product which is doing this. Right. I, I guess I would, if it were some sort of a, I mean, to me, a VPN almost seems sacrosanct. It's like, I agree. do not yeah. mess with my data. And here's a company that says, we're messing with your data. You're using a VPN. We're securing you until you get to our servers. So we are securing your hotspot connection through an, 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 an SSL link. We understand that technology. That's probably bulletproof. But once we have your data and we've decrypted it, we're going to modify it to suit our needs in return for the service that we're providing you. Right. And to me, it's like, I uh, don't think I like that so much. So no approval. Yeah. No seal None. of approval. No, there are, um, there's hotspot VPN. That's a, a, a service that we know and like, it's not free, but it's not expensive. And whereas IPIG was free, this hotspot VPN is not free, but very good. It's based on the, the, the open VPN client and server technology it's one we've looked at and known about for years so if if someone wants something um to use hotspot vpn uh, is is a service that we've looked at and that is not very expensive and we've talked about it in the past you could go to if you went to grc um the security now page and did a search for hotspot vpn search for that string you'll find that we've mentioned it and talked about it in great in great deal of detail in the past yeah and both you and i use it have i have yeah yeah i don't travel anymore i don't need it right question number two flash cookies from bar bob carnheim in oak ridge tennessee 
Hi, guys. I try to stay ahead of the curve. I've been deleting Flash cookies for, well, probably a couple of years now using the Advanced Settings panel of the Flash plugin. And you could do that if you go to any Flash video, YouTube, for instance, right-click on it, select Settings, click the Advanced tab, and you can see right there, you can modify that. He says, but what's next? <laughs> what, what tracking method is out there I don't know about yet? What's, what, what comes after Flash cookies? Well, I just sort of liked the question because yeah. it, it evidenced a maturity of sort of recognition that it, if it's not one thing, it's another. I mean, we've, we've gone from browser cookies. Now there's flash cookies. Of course, the problem is that we're, we're over in the Internet Explorer world. We know that ActiveX controls are provided for all kinds of purposes and could easily have their own tracking technology embedded. And in fact, there is something called um, user persistence objects or something like that. It's something I've got on my list of, of tracking technologies to track down um, and haven't yet. But, you know, there very well may be other, other things coming along. My hope is that, that the outrage caused by this kind of undisclosed opt-out approach. We know, for example, when we were, when we were talking about the, the report that came out a few weeks back, um, the researchers, I think they were at UC Berkeley, who, who noted that more than half of the most popular sites on the Internet were now using Flash cookies because browser cookies had proven too easy to disable so they were being deliberately sneaky and using something else to hold on to people. Now, you could also argue that, for example, a bank wants to be able to maintain login information and that users might naively disable their browser cookies and then no, no longer be able to use the banking site. So the banking site is just like trying to help users to have an experience that they need because they have to have cookies enabled in order to use the site and, and they get like more tech support problems because people have disabled cookies and now the, the site doesn't work. Well, it's like, okay, I mean, there's a dilemma. There's tension between the, what the, what users want and what the, the web server side services want. But this is all sort of part of the, the immaturity of this technology. What I hope is happening is that, our legislators are beginning to wake up to this issue and there's signs that they are such that we'll be protected legally from whatever comes next by having some sort of dialogue where what's going on is explained to us. You know, the, the, the flash problem is that it's something no one expects. It's sort of out of the blue. When you hear about flash also spying on you, it's like, uh, what, what are you talking about? I turned cookies off. No, it didn't turn flash cookies off. Yeah. Those are a whole different cookie. Yeah. It's a whole different kind of cookie. Whole different kind of cookie. They're yeah. always working. On, I mean, you know, you, you get, you're exactly right. You, you know, they're working on something. They're always going to be working on something. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, and again, I mean, I would just say that there are good reasons to, but my, my bank wants to preserve information about me. So I don't have to always jump through a lot of hoops to log in. You've used this computer before. Okay. We'll let you get in. Right. No, and you know it's funny too because the 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 sad thing might be that we wouldn't have a unified solution. That is, it might be that a bank would be reduced to requiring their own plugin 
in order that would be run by your browser in order to provide static state information for your browsing session. Well, that would be sad because your bank would need one or all of your banks would need one. Then eBay would need one and Amazon would need one. And you'd end up with this big mess of individual plugins that your browser ends up lugging around because we were never able to agree upon right, right. A, a clean, uniform, you know, opt-in solution. So instead you were opting in to individual plugins, which just was causing a real problem. And it would be sad if that's where we end up with, but uh, I could see us heading there. Yeah. Yeah. We need some mechanism. Yes. It's not, not completely unreasonable to have something that we can do. No, it's absolutely required yeah. because, you know, as we know, browsing is a stateless act. You you ask for this page and then then that's the last the server knows about you. You then click on a link. Well, it needs to know that that's you clicking on the link, not right. somebody else clicking on the link. And there's no persistent connection. It's it's a normally it's a stateless event. So something has to provide some state information on a per per browser page transaction basis. So cookies used to do that. Flash cookies are doing that now, but we're you know, we're incrementally disabling these things, which is going to end up causing a problem for the, the very real need we have to maintain state. I mean, I, I like the fact now that I've got default, I've got cookies flushing in Firefox and a simple little cookie manager where I just say, no, the site I'm on, eBay or Amazon or, or whatever, where I've logged in, I want this site to be able to leave persistent cookies so that when I come back the next day, it says, oh, Steve, hi, uh, just right. log, you know, log in anyway to make sure that it's still you, not somebody else using your machine, but you know, we assume it is you. And, and you know, for example, you can, with eBay, you can say, keep me logged in for you know, all day, in which case you're able to use it without having to continually Re reverify who you are. Question three from Bill Barnes in Charlotte. I guess that's Charlotte, North Carolina. He says, I'm wondering about punching holes in the wall. I frequently need to get to a computer from the internet. <laughs> okay. I figure, all right, I know who needs access. I'll let them in. Then I open a port of my router, point it at one computer, and open the same port in the computer's firewall. Port forwarding, that's called. Yes. Then someone challenged me about opening that port in the firewall. Isn't that an access point the bad guys can get through? Without considering it deeply, I figured an open port was like a CIA phone number. Someone randomly dials a number. The lady answers with a challenge, 41357. And if the caller is unable to provide the correct reply code work, she hangs up. That's the end of the attack. Am I wrong? Well, this was a, an interesting question because what Bill is saying is that he's opening services to the Internet so that he, wherever he is, and sadly, any hackers, wherever they are, are able to access the service running on the machine on his network. So the router that would normally block and provide good security for unsolicited incoming traffic. The problem is it's blocking Bill who wants to connect to his to a service running on his computer. So Bill says no to the router, open this port and if anything comes into this port send it to this IP behind 
the, the router to this computer. Then, as we know, uh, for example, a, a your typical personal computer today, whether it's a Mac or Windows or, or, or Linux, has a firewall. Well, that's, that's going to stop it again because it's going to be an unsolicited incoming packet. So again, you need to say to the firewall running on the computer, no, allow something coming inbound on this port to come on in. So now what's happened is any traffic out on the internet is able to get all the way into the service running on the computer. The problem is everyone on the net has access. So so now you've got the issue of, okay, so I have to log in to get to this computer. However, in the best case, that's true. History has not demonstrated, unfortunately, that that is the case. For example, just this week, there is news of an IIS, that's Microsoft's internet um, uh, server, the the FTP service running in IIS is vulnerable to attack. So an IIS is the so-called personal web server that you can turn on and configure in Windows XP Professional, for example. And and you can use it locally, but in Bill's scenario, he would have mapped the FTP ports through to his machine. So normally you have to log into an FTP server. Unfortunately, it turns out you don't have to log into Microsoft's. So that's this happens to be a perfect example of, yes, you'd like to have your CIA lady challenging you, a, a challenge response or some sort of a login. In the best world, that's what you've got. The problem is that time and again, we run across mistakes in the coding of that login or, or you know, challenge response password system that, that can allow somebody unauthorized to connect to you. The, in my opinion, the only safe way to handle this is if, for example, Bill was at work and he knows his work's network, then you allow a selective opening of the port. You say, allow incoming connections only from this IP range into my local network. The beauty of that for for, for, for example, TCP connections, like FTP uses in this example, is you cannot spoof the IP of, a T, of an incoming TCP packet and have it succeed. You can make up an IP address, but then the, in, the, in the connection establishing TCP handshake, the, the responding packet will go to the IP you spoofed, not back to the spoofer. So... That's extremely good security, but it does narrow Bill's freedom. For example, he would only be able to access his the, the service running on his machine at home from pre-specified IP ranges, which, the, the, again, the huge security is random hackers scanning the net. For example, you can imagine right now with this known vulnerability in IIS, there's an uptick of people scanning for FTP ports, hoping to, hoping to find exposed IIS FTP services that they can immediately use to compromise the service behind. You don't want to be exposed to that. 
on, a, on an ongoing basis. So, so my feeling is punching holes in the wall indiscriminately um, can be a very dangerous thing to do. So, and maybe what you want to do, if it fits your need, is not have that hole punched through to a main machine on your LAN. Have it go to the so-called DMZ, to, to some machine which is isolated from the network that might be able to give you some of the freedom that you want or, or that you need. But if somebody compromised it, um, you'd be less damaged, although even that is creepy, even to say. Never creepy to say. Yeah. So anyway, you know, uh, Bill ends up saying, am I wrong? It's like, well, it's dangerous. It, you absolutely need to recognize that it's dangerous because vulnerabilities are being founded in or being found in these sorts of services right. all the time. Right. And you, unless you can restrict the port range from which you're making a connection, which does give you very good security, um, I just think it's 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 too freaky. It's just too frightening. Open, that's really that's really where you want a VPN. Opening a server, um, anytime you open a server on your system, you're opening yourself up. Yes, and you rely on the security that the server provides. Yes, and and history is uh, teaches us that uh, that's not a good thing. But and nevertheless, people do it all the time. I mean, you know, I have FTP servers running on my uh, on my uh, NAS, and we port forward over to it. Um, but we have a login and you just hope that the FTP demon is, 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 is secure and you keep an eye on the updates and all sorts of stuff. Cause otherwise, I mean, look, I have a web server running, you know, not on my local network, but it's running on my, it's maybe even a more critical network if I think about it. Uh, so we just trust that we, we are locking it down and we, you know, I have bears always looking at security holes and you harden it and you do the best you can. Yep. Joe Doward in Bracknell Forest, England, echoes a common question. Steve, going back over the parents and passwords issue, where people who just don't get it, like elderly parents or whatever, can't be induced to care and take greater precautions. We had a question about that a few weeks ago. I remember you mentioned in the past that writing down a really good password is better than memorizing a poor one. And something about assessing the threat vector before devising a solution. It seems to me then, that parents or people in general accessing the internet from their homes are safe enough writing down a very good password, even putting a post-it note on the screen on the assumption there's a higher risk of somebody guessing a weak password over the internet than there is of someone seeing the good password written down in their home. We can't expect most people to adopt a more secure way of life if it's not easy. So getting them to write down good passwords, or you know, unless you give them Yubi keys or something, is a pretty good solution and better than having them use password that's their password he makes a good yeah. point yeah i think it's a very good point because you do have the danger over the net of somebody having the opportunity to guess a weak password and you could argue that okay written down on a post-it note there's just not that much physical exposure to their written down password i would add and the reason i i wanted to bring this up is that uh, Joe made a very good point. I wanted to add one more thing, though, that I that I did say before, just to make sure it's heard. And that is, make a change to the password you write down. You know, deliberately do something to it. Swap the first and last character. Add something of your own, either to the end or to the beginning. Or you know, do you know because you can combine 
the thing that you've written down, which is bizarre, you know, with special characters and punctuation marks and things, and then always remember to do something custom to it. That's easy to remember. And in fact, if you forget and you put in, you know, the password exactly as it is, it'll get rejected and you go, oh, that's right. I have to add, you know, my special incantation to it. Then you've really got the best of both worlds. You've got something non-guessable, but the part you remember can be guessable because the concatenation of those won't be. And that's that's a perfect, I think, compromise for people like people's parents who don't want to do separate passwords for everything and so forth. Yeah, that's kind of what I do. I don't want to talk too much about how I do. No, that's not supposed of, to. Yeah, that's kind of what I do. Uh, and I have... And this is what parents won't do, secure password stores. Instead, I, don't, I wouldn't write them on Post-it notes. I keep a secure password store, uh, which has its own master password. And that's pretty. And that's kind of the same idea. It's just a hard one to get mom and dad to do. Yeah. Or whoever. And mom and dad, if you're the tech literate person in your family, I apologize. To get the kids to do. Let's put no it. disrespect. No man. disrespect intended at all. Paul By in Rochester, Minnesota, is being annoyed by DNS results being altered by ISPs. We've talked about this many times before. He says, Dear Steve, I thought I'd pass this along as you and your listeners of uh, Security Now might find it interesting. You've discussed this topic on previous shows. I don't remember you ever mentioning this one in particular. My ISP, Charter Communications, it's a cable company, recently made changes to their DNS So that, like many other ISP-hosted DNS servers, if you put in a host name and there's a DNS miss, the host name isn't in their database, they return an address to their own, quote, helpful search page saying, did you mean so-and-so? I could live with being rerouted to the search page when I'm browsing. It's annoying, but it doesn't cause any major harm. The problem is I, and so many other people probably... Uh, have is that this is altering the fundamental way DNS is supposed to work and causing all TCP IP based programs that depend on DNS to fail. The first major problem I hit after this change is trying to connect to my company's network with their VPN client, something I depend on heavily to do my work. I can still connect okay, but now when I type in a host name that is on the internal company network but not visible to the outside internet world, Charter's DNS server doesn't find the host name and then returns their search page IP address. Now, obviously, this breaks the VPN. So far, the only way I've been able to get around this is either manually editing my connection settings to put the VPN-specific DNS IP addresses, uh, which I then have to switch back after I disconnect, so that's inconvenient, or go find some DNS servers that don't behave this way. You've recommended OpenDNS in the past. I'm sad to say they're doing the same sort of thing. They are. I'll vouch for that because I use OpenDNS. I finally found a post indicating the existence of some publicly available, strong, stable servers that do DNS correctly. And he found this on the Donation Coder forums. We have a longer link, which I'll put in the show notes. Um, uh, He says he switched to those for now. I plan on setting up my own DNS server after hearing that you do this as well. But I thought listeners might want to know about the ones mentioned in this forum post, as I found them to be really good and high-performing. Thanks so much to you and Leo for the show. I've been a listener since day one. Look forward to every Thursday when a new episode is available. So what's what's the deal on this? I, I didn't realize it could break a VPN. Sure. And in fact, mostly it's there are problems with non-web protocols because some of these are not very selective. Um, I happen to, uh, I don't know if I would call myself the world's foremost 
expert on this at the moment, but the DNS benchmark, which is ever ever so close to being released, and we'll be talking about it before long, has explicit handling and detection of DNS servers that do this. And we've discovered that this is a, we meaning myself and the people who are in the, the grc.dns uh, news group at, at GRC, we've discovered that this is something which is becoming more and more common. I did want to mention just for the sake of, of completeness to Paul, that you can create an account with OpenDNS and you can turn that behavior off. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's happening is ISPs who are generally moving towards this are also generally providing an opt-out option so that uh, you, he might, I might suggest that he check with Charter and see if there's a way to turn this off because most ISPs are being made sensitive to this because savvy users are saying, wait a minute, I don't want your darn search page coming up. I want an error and, you know, for whatever reason. And so it might very well be, I don't know in the case of Charter directly, um, there's one big ISP. I'm trying, as you were reading this, I was trying to remember the name. I think they're big, they, the name begins with C-O-M. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the name of it, though. Anyway. Um, You're joking, are, right? We Comcast. Know. There you go. That's the one. <laughs> no, I, I was just drawing a blank. Okay. You know, I'm getting old. Um, I wasn't yes, sure Com- if you were just being cagey or uh, actually had no. forgotten. Okay. Com- uh, Comcast is now doing this too, and they're beginning to spread this across the country. Of course, you know I why do- they do this. They make money. They put yes. ads on that page. Absolutely. They're, it's like, oops, sorry you made a typo. He, he, he. But look at this. Maybe you want to buy one of these. It's like, uh, no, thank you. I just want my error, please. Now, the link that he provided, I followed the link, curious whether he knew about DNS servers I didn't know about. Because one of the cool things that the benchmark, the forthcoming benchmark for me does, is it has, uh, I forgot now, like um, a bunch, maybe a hundred. Maybe it's not a hundred. That's a lot. We have a big, I have a, it, it knows about a huge number of publicly available DNS servers and it it compares their performance to your DNS servers, and to, to the idea being that it may be that your ISP has slower DNS servers than are available publicly. So by changing to these publicly available servers, you get better performance for all your internet stuff. It's going to be a very cool app. It also tests for and warns you if these if any if your ISP servers or any of the public ones like open DNS are doing this DNS redirection because that's something you would probably want to be made aware of. So it is the case, for example, with Comcast that you can configure theirs not to do this. So I would suggest that maybe charters is the same, but I was, but I was was saying that on this forum, what the IPs they gave was very familiar to people who have been using non non-ISP DNS servers, 4.2.2.1 through 4.2.2.6. Those are level three servers. Oh, I, which, th- I thought it was Verizon. That's level three. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, maybe it is. I, I think there was some, there might've been some ownership change. Cause now that you say that, I let me ping it and see. Yeah. 
Well, actually, and, the, and not surprisingly, my DNS benchmark determines the ownership of all of the DNS servers that it, it finds. It's still level three. Okay, still level three. Um, I thought so. Anyway, so... The and they, and they is, don't mind if you do that? Well, they're, they're open to the public, and they've... They're, I mean, these, I've seen the, the IPs given around a lot. The problem is they're not quite as stable and reliable as you might think. And once again, the DNS benchmark, which will be free when I get it documented, basically it's finished. I just need to get the documentation done because it's got so many bells and whistles in it. It's even able to determine the reliability of all of the DNS servers from from your vantage point. And in addition to ranking their performance in a number of different parameters, it's turned out to be very cool. And, it's, you know, it's where months of my time has gone because I think it's going to end up being so important. But our users have found that these level three servers are not as reliable as they thought. And specifically, some of them don't. It uses a technology called Anycast, where you have fixed IPs that hopefully find a DNS server that's local to you. But it turns out that some, I think dot three, for example, is problematical for like a lot of people. But anyway, we will be talking about this in more detail in the future when as soon as I get the benchmark uh, documentation finished. Uh, in the meantime, I would suggest that people who are seeing this behavior check on their ISP's pages to see if there's a way they can f- configure this behavior off if they don't see it as a benefit. Is it only uh, VPNs that have a problem with this? Are there other? Not- no, it, it would be any any technology. You see, the idea is you you your system on your behalf, looks up an IP. If it is not found, then then you received an IP instead for a web page, which is the search results. Well, what that means is that any programs other than a web browser are going to get really confused by this. <clears throat> a web browser will show you the page that the search engine provides. However, other things like an FTP uh, client, a chat client, I mean, anything essentially else will get a, this IP, which is bogus, and they'll try to connect to it. Get an HTTP page area. Yeah. So it does. I mean, an HTML page, which you yeah. can't interpret. Exactly. And so, so they this? don't get it. If, if instead they received an error message, a DNS error, then they could present you with a, a dialogue box, as which they probably are configured to do so, saying, hey, you just typed in a, a chat URL right. that's incorrect. Instead, they'll, they assume that the IP is, is, is correctly mapped to the URL. I mean, it's, it really does break DNS. The purists, you know, the old curmudgeons among us, are upset with this because it breaks DNS. This is not the way DNS works. Yet it's, you know, it's a creeping, as you said, it is a rec- it's a it's a, a revenue source right. that ISPs are increasingly waking up to and going, "Hey, uh we can do that too. Let's get our little piece of the pie." And you know, I think it's not completely disingenuous of them to say it also is better for users because they don't get a 404, they get something more useful back. You know, yeah. the mom and pop thing. But it does, now, But if it, it breaks everything but HTTP, that's not a good thing. And it's interesting because my probe in the DNS benchmark, it was originally doing a test for an uh, for www.andsubdomain.something.com. 
and looking to verify that an error was returned. It turned out that there were some smarter ISPs which uh, were would would look to see whether you had www or not, but that was causing me to miss some redirections. So then I changed my code to remove the www and just look for domain.com, you know, like bogusdomain.com and verify that we got back an error. And so that's the way it had been for a couple months. Then somebody, we, we realized that there were yet another iteration was that that would not return the error, but the www would. So now the benchmark is doing both. So anyway, we'll we'll, uh, we'll be talking about this in more detail when I have when I'm ready to unveil the benchmark to our listeners. Which you know, it's just a matter of uh, of me having a little time to get it documented. But the technology is in place. Rorks points out that this is really something more appropriate for the web browser to do than the DNS to do. The web browser, like Internet Explorer, can can come back with an MSN page and say, "Oh no, you meant you know this." That's a beautiful, a beautiful example that that puts the responsibility where it ought to be right. so that you're not crippling all the other applications on your machine right. that don't know how to interpret, you know, an IP address coming back. That's, you know, wrong right. to a question they ask. Problem is Comcast makes no money on that. <laughs> right. Uh, here's a question, I guess, for me uh, from Rod Duckworth in Sydney, Australia. He wants to know about old shows. He says, Steve, you won't remember me, but I've spoken to you uh, on the phone a couple of times some years back. Ray Spinright. I'm a longtime user. Always loved Spinright. Thank you. I have owned an IT company called High Speed Networking in Sydney, Australia for some 20 years now. I employ about 15 people and have been using Spinright since the first available version. I'm licensed up to version 6. I've also been listening to Security Now since episode 1. As I'm always on your site, keeping abreast of what's happening, using Shields Up when I'm on site at clients, and I, too, specialize in IT security and ethical hacking. By the way, not now, but I have some ripper spin-right testimonials and stories that I'll send you at some stage for security now that'll be fantastic for you when I get around to writing them down. However, what I wanted to know was, although I can download all the old versions of podcasts via your website in MP3 mode, iTunes only lets me go back 20 or so. I'll explain why that is, by the way. Although I can, it's not iTunes, it's us. I can and have got these audio files from your site, they won't load into iTunes as a podcast as such. Okay. Uh, see, I had some time off from security now, some time back due to personal issues that occupy my life for a while. I haven't actually missed listening. It's just I don't have as many of them as I don't have all the shows as podcasts. He also says, I occasionally get over to Long Beach. That's a long trip from Australia. So yeah. next time I'm in there, I'm going to pop into Starbucks and have a coffee with you. And thank you personally for the podcast and spin right. Meantime, how can I point my iTunes at a podcast source that has all the episodes in podcast format for me to download via iTunes. Is there any way? Also, do you mind if I put the MP3 on my site in a secure members area? So let me explain what goes on. iTunes is dumb. It doesn't know anything. We just we don't make our feed longer than 20 shows on any of the shows because as the feed, you know, we could have every show in there, but the feed, the RSS for the feed would be hundreds and hundreds of kilobytes, probably a megabyte if I put all the show. And that means every time you check the RSS, which could be several uh, times you have a to day. Download the entire file. Download the entire file, <clears throat> which is considerable bandwidth for us and for you, uh, especially if you're in Australia and you have bandwidth caps. There's no, I don't see any reason to offer a megabyte or two megabyte RSS feed. So the RSS feed, and I think this was really the intent of RSS. You know, you look at RSS feeds from websites, for instance, they don't have everything ever published on the website. It's just the most recent 
X articles. In our case, it's the most recent 20 podcasts. And that's what iTunes is using. Now, if you keep iTunes running all the time, it will update that. And you'll, you, you know, if you've been running iTunes and had the subscription to Security Now since day one, your iTunes will contain a listing of all the shows because it just updates the listing. But the most recent RSS feed only contains 20 shows. Now, he has a separate issue, which is when he downloads them from, I, I'm not sure why this is happening from your site. Uh, try it from our site. I'm not sure if there's a difference. Um, but uh, those shows are not, he says, showing up as podcasts. You can go into iTunes and say in the uh, info setting, this is a podcast check a box. What that does is it, it puts it in the podcast folder. It changes how synchronization occurs. It also makes it a spoken word file, which means instead of starting at the beginning each time, it bookmarks where you left off and went back to that point. Oh, that sounds like a good a good option to have. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the same with audiobooks. It's just a checkbox on iTunes, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it used to, they used to make it a very obscure um, tag, kind of an iTunes-specific tag, but now it's just a checkbox. So that's all you need to do is select the, download them, import them into iTunes, select them all, get info, check the box that says, uh, I, I, these, these are podcasts. It'll treat them properly from, uh, from then on. Um, you know, you can get any show... Every show on our network is available through the Twit website directly. If you know the way, the, the the naming scheme, it's always twit.tv slash the initials of the show. In this case, SN, followed by the show number. So this show, which is uh, what episode two twelve, is at twit.tv slash SN two one two, and it goes all the way back to SN one. SN2, SN3. So they're all there. They're all stost. In fact, if you look at the naming scheme from our server, you could even do this automatically with a little script because we don't change the, the file naming scheme is always the same. So if you look at our file naming scheme, which is a little longer because it goes to cash fly or no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's from AOL, isn't it? So it's AOL and then it's uh, there's a redirect in there, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at that, the only thing that ever changes is the show number. So you could just manipulate the show numbers and you can get any file directly. You could write a curl script that would step through them all and download them all all at once. So they're all there on the server, but the RSS feed never contains all the shows. It just would be horrendous. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. I I wanted to make one comment. He asks if we mind if he puts the MP3 on his site in a secure members area. And the the only downside for us of that is that we would not get credit for the count of those downloads. Yeah, we prefer um, you didn't. Uh, it's better for us if you if you copy the links right. because then the link does route through PodTrack so that they're able to count the the number and that way they know how many people are listening and then our sponsors are able to say, oh, this has this podcast has this number of listeners. It's worth this much to us. Right. And that makes it worth that much to us. Technically, our license... Uh, we use a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution share alike allows you really to do anything you want with a podcast because yep. we're really more interested in people getting it out there. But and, we'd and ask sharing it. Yeah, yeah. sharing it. But we'd ask as a courtesy uh, if you are going to put it on your web page, just put a, use the link that we use, which you'll see starts with PodTrack.com. And all that happens is PodTrack every time that the show is downloaded from any source at all, a little counter increments. PodTrack does. And I, I should say in the interest of since you guys are all smart and understand this stuff, in the interest of full disclosure, Potrack has a IP database of unique IP addresses. And we are trying for, for advertisers' purposes, you could download it 20 times. We only count that as once. We, if, 
so it's in it's counting unique addresses from the IP. But we don't, in fact, save your IP address. There's no log. We're not saying who's downloading it. We just do that. Compare it and to an IP. It's database. only to get an honest count. It's to get an honest, unique count. So when we say, for instance, uh, eighty thousand people listen to this show, it's not eighty thousand downloads. In fact, the download number is probably three or four hundred thousand. It's eighty thousand unique listeners. So, then that's something advertisers, uh, of course, want us to do. You know, a lot of shows will give out their download numbers because they're way inflated. We don't do that. So um, that explains it all. We 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 don't and and can't stop you from doing that. But we'd ask you if you would to please just put the link. We don't mind the bandwidth. We've got the bandwidth. Well, and in fact, there's a nice compromise too. I, w- I would say if for some reason you're worried that the MP3 files were, will ever go away, you could certainly keep a local copy of them, but use our links for users to access them so that if they ever went away, I don't know why they ever would, but then you've, you know, you've got your own backup copy, but the live, the live access uses our links so that the, the counters get incremented. I don't think they're ever going to go away. I don't think so. (laughs) I guess the AOL, which provides their bandwidth could at some point stop hosting and they might have to move to another location, but then I I, I will do my best to make sure that the podcasts continue. Well, and, and I'm insulated from that. My technology that I've got, I actually have a switch in on the, in the registry of the server. I just turn it off and all of everything gets hosted locally. So it's just a matter of them. If that ever happens, I just change a switch and, and my own redirection gets uh shut down so i'm prepared for that eventuality as well right yeah question seven uh from john prince in somerset uk he had a disquieting dialogue with netgear about this wpa crack we were talking about yeah Hello, Steve. As an avid listener to Security Now since the beginning, episode one, I know you'll be discussing this matter on the show. I thought you might be interested in the reply I received from Netgear about my own router, which is only a couple of years old. I realize that this vulnerability is not in the wild just yet, but I thought I'd make inquiries now rather than get into panic mode at a later stage. It seems a shame that they have to wash their hands of responsibility for their product, and that I may have to fork out hard-earned cash to replace a piece of equipment which is in otherwise good order. If you have any advice in the matter, I'm sure I and all your other listeners would be most interested in hearing it. P.S. If I have to replace my router, I doubt this company will now be my first choice as a supplier. Here's the reply from Netgear. Thank you for choosing, Netgear. My name is Amandeep, and I will be your support engineer. I appreciate the opportunity to assist you. Regarding your concern, please note that the DG834GV2 is an end-of-life product and there are no further updates planned for the router. He said it was only two years old, so that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty quick. Therefore, in order to get the WPA2 security on your network, I would request you to please upgrade your router with a new one. And he gave some newer model numbers. I believe this answers your query. If you need any further help, please email us back, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's interesting. Two years old, you'd think they'd have WPA2 in it. That's what I'm curious about. I mean, that's one of the things, is that if it's really only a few years old, that's certainly long enough for them to have i mean for them to have before now updated i mean it even if it were a couple years old and it were say that it was four years old well wpa2 has been around like when the router was a couple years old to get itself updated one possibility strange as it seems is that maybe it's unable the hardware is unable to handle aes encryption 
it is the case that the TKIP encryption um, of the of the of the less capable WPA is easier on hardware. Um, you know, John asked for some advice, and you know, the one thing you could do is use one of the routers that has an open alternative firmware. And that's going to inherently give you, I think, really good longevity because the, the, the open software community will keep it current and keep it patched and keep adding features to it. And, you know, as the state of the art moves forward, I, I would tend to think you're much better off with that approach if you're unwilling to, you know, to continually march forward uh, with, you know, the, the obsolete hardware problem. I mean, this, it's annoying that they're saying, well, it's end of life. At the same point, you can understand that they're spitting out so many different routers constantly, which is that's another problem that's uh, sort of annoying, is that they're having to just discontinue support for the older ones. Right. Yeah, firmware would be easy enough to do. But, I, you know, look, every company has to make this decision at some point. It's expensive. Exactly. You can't support everything you've ever made. Exactly. But two years does seem a little short. Yeah. Last question. Grant McMillan in Brisbane, Australia, wonders about decrypting today's data trivially in the future. Now, this is a good question. I like this. Hi, Steve. Given the exponential growth in computing power these days, it seems that any encryption method used today could eventually be cracked quite easily. Will it be possible for a person to record packets today with the intention of cracking them? Once it's trivial in years or even decades from now. Thanks for the great podcast. That's a that's a very good point. I mean, computer power doubles every 18 months. Yeah, it's a great point. And um, what I liked about the question was he noticed that he talks about recording packets today. That is to say that rather than than ignoring the packets today because we can't decrypt them, you know, save them. They're encrypted, but save them because it may very well be that as we move forward, and we're seeing examples of this all the time. For example, we just talked about how we're no longer going to use MD4 or, or Chrome. Google's Chrome is no longer going to allow MD4 signatures on SSL certificates for browser surfing because now we know that there's some chance in some situations that it's possible to forge certificates in order to forge um, the identities of the endpoints that you're connecting to with SSL. So um, so the idea is that we're obsoleting those and replacing them with newer technology. Well, there's no way to obsolete encrypted data which you have stored because you've, you've saved it. And so at some point in the future, we made, it may be that AES encryption is is weakened and that the world for example moves away from it to something else well any traffic that is current at the time will follow that migration to the stronger cipher but old traffic which may not any longer be used in real time but if you saved it in a in a safe somewhere in an archive at this point in the future is like ah now finally I can essentially turn back the clock. It's like having a time machine going back to stuff you had saved and for some reason felt or had reason to believe was very valuable. And now you can decrypt it. So it's, it's a really great question. One of the, one of the things that came up in last week's 
episode about voting machines was the notion and, and in the in the researchers mind, they were exactly focused on this problem. That is, this, this design of this voting machine was 20 years old. How had it survived the evolution of technology during that 20 years? And for example, this whole concept of return-oriented programming that we talked about, that, that, had been in, that was invented relatively recently. So they couldn't really protect against something that they couldn't anticipate. And similarly, the, the point was made in their article that RAM, at the time, that these RAM cartridges, these voting cartridges, had static RAM with batteries in them and didn't have very much RAM because physically RAM was much bigger then than it is now. But that now you could imagine a, an entirely different technology in, in, in something the size of that cartridge, which was barely able to hold RAM. You could put a whole cray supercomputer in, in a cartridge of that size using today's technology. So the question is, did the technology then, um, was it designed to be robust enough to survive the during its, during its application, during its use lifetime? Can it survive all the, all the forward motion of technological progress during that time? And that's really not something we've talked about before, no. but that is, it's, it's a really great question. And it, it is absolutely foremost in the minds of people who, who think about, you know, what's the vulnerability? It's not just today, but it's either, you know, it's, it's technology which is locked in place today needing to survive during the technology's useful lifetime. But the notion of saving encrypted data today on the off chance that that some point in the future it will be decryptable, that's also very important. Yeah. Great question. So, yeah. So ass- assume that at some point it will, but maybe you won't care in a hundred years. Well, the, the, the downside or the, the, the counterfactor to that is he says, hi, Steve, given the exponential growth in computing power, well, I will remind our listeners again that even though it's so easy to add bits, oh, look, we just added some bits to this key. Every bit you add is exponential growth. Every bit doubles the number of possible combinations of the key. Mm. And so that's exponential. And we're saying that, okay, today we can, a 64-bit key is probably not safe. Um, 128-bit key, okay, so we, we go, wait, we only doubled the length. We only made it, we only added 64 bits. But, oh, my God, that is so much stronger than 64 bits. So it, it's deceptive how little we need to lengthen so, um, symmetric cipher keys in order to dramatically, that is exponentially, increase their strength. So when you go to 256 bits, forget about it. So that's a, forget, that's a, you know, I, I've often, you know, uh, people have said, um, should you, you know, at 1024 is plenty. Why should you use 2048? Uh, there's a good reason. Not for now. Yes, it's not yes 1024 is plenty. Yes. But it's down not the road. for today, it's for tomorrow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, Steve, we've come to the end of this fabulation of fabulous questions. 
I just made that word up. Uh, yeah. Confab- confabulation. <laughs> Confabulation. Conflagration. <laughs> Next week, GSM cracking. Should be a lot yes. of fun. Our topic in depth. T-I-D. Topic in depth. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you want this show or any of the past 212 episodes, you can get those from Steve's site. He has uh, 16 kilobit versions available for, for quick download. Quality goes down, but you, at least they're small. Uh, he also has transcripts, which are even quicker downloads and a great way to kind of search and follow and figure out what's going on. Those are all at grc.com. If you want to ask a question for future feedback episodes, it's grc.com slash feedback. And of course, don't forget spin rights there and all of the great software that steve does uh, most of it is free um, and certainly spin is well worth the money if you've got a hard drive you really should have spin to keep it running in tip-top shape sooner or later you're probably going to need it you bet grc.com the gibson research corporation and steve we'll see you next week for another great episode of security now absolutely thanks leo security now